Uh, there's an old story. Um, I don't know if it's true or not, but preachers have been telling it for years. But the story is that uh, President Calvin Coolidge, one Sunday morning, he woke up, his wife wasn't feeling well, and so uh, he decided to go to church alone. So his wife stayed home, he went to church, and he sat through the service, came home, his wife had fixed lunch, and he sits down at the table, and they begin talking, and she says, how was church, honey? And he says, oh, it was great, you know, like a normal man, you know, talking to his wife after church, doesn't have many words to say. How was it? It was fine, it was fine, and he back to eating. And she says, no, Calvin, tell me about it. What was, uh, what was church like today? What did the pastor preach on? And he says, well, the, the topic of the sermon was sin. And then he goes back to eating his lunch, and his wife says, uh, well, well what, what did he say about sin? He goes, I don't know, honey. I don't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure he was against it. Um, and, you know, if President Calvin Coolidge were here to hear me teach, uh, I imagine, I hope he would say the same thing about me. What does that pastor think of sin? Well, I'm against it. Uh, about a year ago, I was in Phoenix, Arizona. I was spending the week with a cohort of pastors, um, and we were the, the the whole goal of this thing was we would gather together and we were being trained on how to become better communicators, better preachers, better speakers. And so we all did this getaway in Phoenix. We're sitting in this living room with all these just incredibly gifted communicators and preachers. And uh, the guy who was facilitating this cohort, he gave a, he asked us to do a brief exercise. And he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take out your notebook and I want you to write down your mission statement for your preaching ministry. Why do you preach? I mean, what, what are your objectives when you stand up to preach to God's people? What do you hope happens? What's your mission statement uh, for preaching? Many of you have had to write mission statements at work and they're never fun because you never know exactly what to write. But I went to work, tried to do my best on this assignment. And uh, then we had to share it with the group. And so we're going around the group and there's all these just unbelievably gifted uh, communicators and they're giving all their mission statements. And I'm like, oh, I'm the dumbest guy in the room. Um, theirs, was, theirs were impressive. You know, they had these big discipleship and evangelism and we want to train people to love God and love others and all these things. And then all these sort of these big complicated mission statements. And then it got to me and I said, well, I have two goals in preaching and even in pastoring. The first goal is that I preach so that my congregation won't sin. <laughs> and everybody laughed. They were like, whoa, McGee, Pastor McGee, that sounds harsh. You know, you preach so they don't sin? I said, well, I said there's two goals, all right? There's two. And then I said, uh, my first goal in preaching is that the people whom I preach to will not sin. The second goal is that when they inevitably do, I want them to know that God is kind and gracious to forgive. And that, I mean that. Um, as the pastor of this church, um, I want you to take sin seriously. Um, put it to death in your life. Pursue righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God because this is where you will experience life. But I also want you to know that when you do sin, Jesus stands ready to forgive. Even on your worst day, your life is not over. God is not finished with you. And so I explained this to the group, and they were like, oh, okay, actually, now that we think about it, sorry we made fun of you, Will, that's actually pretty good. Where did you get that? That's amazing. I said, well, I got it from the Apostle John. 
First John chapter two, verse one is our text today. And this is simply what John says. And I was ripping him off in my mission statement. John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you, meaning the letter of first John, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If there is any goal for my pastoral ministry, there's any job description that sums up what I want my ministry to be about, that's it. I am up here preaching to you <laughs> so that you will not sin. But when you do, I want you to know that you have an advocate in Jesus. Last week, um, we began a new teaching series on the New Testament letter of 1 John, and this single verse is our text today. But in this verse, John issues both a warning and a comfort. Do not sin. Warning, but when you do, Jesus, comfort. Um, do not sin, but when you do. That's the outline for today. Or another way to put it would be, I want you to see the cost of sin, and I want you to see the comfort of Jesus. So do not sin. What is the cost of sin? G uh, John says, my little children, I'm writing all these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, I think a lot of us, when we hear someone saying, don't sin, we easily, our minds go to some unhinged maniac on the street corner screaming into a megaphone. I remember when I went to college, there was a guy that would come to our campus two or three times a year, and he would just scream at people from me with megaphones, mostly about girls for the shorts they were wearing or whatever, and he was just so mean. The Spirit of God was not in this man. And so when, when John says, do not sin... I don't want you to think of that guy. He's probably at Union Square right now shouting at people, you know. That, that John, notice how he addresses his readers. He says, my little children. And this is not condescending. I mentioned this last week. This is not meant to be condescending. He's like, hey, not kiddos, like scratching us on our heads. That's not what he's doing. Uh, John, at the time of writing this letter, is most likely the, the last living apostle. And so he's the last of his kind. He's the last of a generation. And he knows that he, he is speaking as an elder statesman of the Christian faith at this point in time. And these are not meant to be condescending words, my little children. These are the words of a kind spiritual father who wants what is best for our lives. And so John is cautioning us to recognize and remember that sin, any disobedience to God's commands, is never a small act. There's always a cost associated with disobedience. And he's not shouting from a soapbox. He's gently cautioning us as a loving parent to a child. And if you're a parent, a good parent, you know this. Uh, if you see your child doing something that is wrong or harmful, you want to stop them. You want to warn them. Um, for example, I have three children. If I were to see one of my children bullying or excluding, or being mean to another child. Uh, what do you think I would do? I, would I let it slide? Absolutely not. I'm gonna, pull my, I'm gonna pull that child aside, and I'm gonna discipline them. And I'm gonna say, that's not what we do. That's not how we act. Now, why would I do that? Why do we discipline our children? Why do we tell our children not to do certain things? Specifically, bullying. Why do I not want my kids to bully? Well, there's a number of reasons, right? The first is it hurts other people. And I don't want my child to be responsible for hurting another human being. So I tell them, don't bully. Um, but also it hurts the reputation of our family. It brings dishonor. 
and shame into our family when a child acts like that. It, it, it does. Um, but also, I don't want my child to bully because actions like that have a way not only of hurting other people, but it hurts them. Uh, if, if someone is a bully, you're going to be alienated from your peers. People aren't going to like you. And if your child is a bully long enough, they'll find themselves sitting alone at the lunch table because they've, they've, they, they've isolated themselves because they've been mean to everyone. But not only that, think about this. It, something as like bullying or being mean, or having a mean-spirited heart, um, it does something damaging to our souls. And I think about my children, and I see them doing something like that. I want to stop it at its root because I know that if you let that, that, that thing fester and grow, it will, it, that, the seeds of ugliness will be sown. And I, I, I mean this with all respect, but I, and I, I hate to make generalities, but I've, been, I've, I've seen Facebook, and oftentimes, the people who were bullies in middle school, there is a cancerous effect that their behavior that they started as a child has on their development in life. And many of you may know this. You go to your 20-year reunion, and you're like, that guy's still that way, and he looks unhappy, he looks sad, and just it, 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 is, it is unbecoming. And I don't want my children to begin doing things that rot and decay their souls and malform them into, away from the way of Jesus and into something else. It's not just that bullying is wrong. It's that a behavior like that is terribly costly to your child's development, uh, who they're becoming, not to mention how it hurts those around them. So we warn our children against sin because we, don't, we want to protect our kids from the effects and the costs of sin. And this is exactly what John is saying to us. He says, when you sin, there is always a cost. Listen to what he says just a few verses earlier in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. He says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Uh, John's, uh, he's not pulling his punches here. He's being honest about the cost of sin. And there are multiple ways in which the New Testament defines what sin is. Um, but at its heart, sin is any deviation from the way of Jesus. Um, this includes disobedience to God's commands, doing the things. Sin is doing things that he has commanded us not to do. Think of the Ten Commandments. Um, this disobedience often it, it results in sins against others or sins against our own bodies. But sin also includes ignoring the Holy Spirit. Um, it, this includes sins of omission, when it's not that you did something wrong, it's that you knew what you should have done and you didn't do it. God, for example, has commanded you, all of you, to be generous with your resources, your money. And you go, now I'm going to withhold it for myself. That's sin. God has commanded you to be patient and kind with others, to be humble, to lower yourself. And you go, nope, I'm going to show superiority and unforgiveness toward people. That's sin. God has called you to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And you say, I will seek my own. 
When God calls you to encourage someone and you go, not right now, that is sin. That is a deviation from the way of Jesus. And John uses the image of darkness and light. He says, sin is when we avoid living in the light. John says, life and fellowship with God are found in the light, but if we hide in the darkness, we forfeit that fellowship with God and we put ourselves in spiritual danger. Um, Earlier this year, I was in San Francisco and uh, I visited Muir Woods National Park. Has any of you ever been there? The redwoods and everything, just unbelievably gorgeous. Spent the whole afternoon there. And uh, there were signs all along the trail that said, failure to stay on path may result in serious injury. John's saying the same thing. You know, Jesus said there is a, there's a narrow path that leads to life. And there's a wide road that many are on, but it leads to destruction. Um, John is saying, stay on the path that Jesus has put you on. Because when you deviate from the path, there is spiritual danger. And what is the spiritual danger? John says the spiritual danger of sin is separation. Uh, there, he says there are, three, there are three primary separations that happen when we sin. There's separation from God. In verse 6, he says, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we're lying and we're not practicing the truth. Then there's separation from others. When we sin, there's separation from others. Verse 7, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. And the, the converse of that is true. If we walk in the darkness, we will not have fellowship with one another. So there's separation from God, separation from others, but then there's separation from our own self. Verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And what John is saying is that if we, if we brush off or minimize the significance of our sin, he says the truth is not in us. We can actually separate ourselves from the very self that God has created us to be. So the first thing I want you to see is that sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2 The prophet says, but your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he cannot hear you. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. In the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, the very first thing they did when they realized they sinned is they covered themselves because they were ashamed and then they hid from God. And there is something within us that knows that God is holy and that we are unworthy. And we know this most acutely when we're walking in sin. This is why we hide in shame the moments that we do the thing we said we weren't going to do. You all know that feeling, right? You know the feeling when you said, I'm never going to do that thing again. And then you do it. And there's this moment where you go, gosh, I'm not worthy to pray. I can't pray right now. I can't open my Bible. I should probably skip church this week because, gosh, what a hypocrite I would be to show up at that place after what I just did. See, our tendency is we want to hide and cover ourselves when we sin. Several years ago, I knew a guy uh, who had just become a Christian. And he was so, it was so incredible to watch. Uh, He was so excited about his new faith. Um, He was converted from a life of pretty hard living. And we had lunch one day, and man, he was just big smile on his face, and he said, I am so excited to be a Christian. 
He says, God has changed me. He's transformed me. He said, I don't even want to do the things I used to do. I'm not even tempted by those things anymore. I'm never turning back. And I've had a lot of those conversations in my ministry. And I, I said to him, man, that is so incredible to hear. I said, but I do want to say one thing. And that is that I want you to know if you do, I know you say you're not going to, but if you do fall back into old habits, don't hide from God. He will be there even if you fall again. He will be there. He's faithful and just. And sure enough, a few months later, um, this guy did the things that he said he was never going to do again. And I reached out to him over the phone again and again and again and again. He never responded to my calls. Finally, I ran into him on the street uh, a few months later, and I said, man, how have you been? Where have you been? And he essentially just said, hey, uh, that church stuff, that was a phase. Um, I'm not cut out for it. Um, I can never change. You see, in his shame, he hid from God. He hid from the community that God has given him. And he separated himself from the grace of God. And it breaks my heart, not because he sinned, but it breaks my heart because his sin is now causing this barrier between him and God that God does not place there. His own shame put that there. And I know that I have a tendency to do the very same thing. I may not quit faith or church altogether. I, maybe I know better than that, but I do have a tendency to hide from God. And withhold myself from God and separate myself from him on my bad days. And John says, this is no way to live. This is why he says, don't sin. Sin separates you from God, but it also separates us from others. One of the most vivid memories that I have in my life is uh, several years ago at a different church. It wasn't at this church, but um, a, a well-known guy in our community and in our church um, got busted uh, cheating on his wife. And um, that Sunday, when it all kind of came to a head, um, of course his wife was just absolutely destroyed. Um, but I remember at church that Sunday, you know, after the sermon was over and the music was playing, you know, we had the altar ready. That girl's teenage daughter was at the front just sobbing. And I knew what had happened. Nobody else knew, but I knew the story. And I just remember thinking, sin does that. Our, you know, that fling was not some, some it, it wasn't some small thing. I mean, it, it wrecked his little daughter's life. And if that is not a warning to us, men, <laughs> to be faithful, because there are residual effects to our sins always, and it's not just in adultery. It's in all of our sins. You know, it's easy to point out and go, oh, yeah, adultery, that would betray my spouse, would hurt my children. It's easy to look at things like abusive or neglectful parenting and go, oh, I wound my children. Yeah, yeah, It's easy to spot sin and how it hurts others when we think of racism or prejudice, how you oppose and oppress and belittle other people. It's easy to see like, okay, yeah, those hurt people. But this is true of all of our sins. All of our sin creates some separation between us and others. You think you're telling even the smallest of white lies, but what you are doing is depriving someone of truth. That is a sin against them. Uh, you, are, you think you're just spreading harmless gossip. Oh, it's funny. It's a joke at the water cooler. But you are damaging someone's reputation. And here's the other thing. When you gossip, 
It's not just that you're damaging the other person that's not theirs reputation. You're damaging your own because nobody's going to trust you if you're the guy or you're the girl who talks about other people behind their back. So you're damaging, you're, you're damaging the trust you have with other people. When the Holy Spirit commands you to be generous with your money and you don't do it, you are withholding from the poor. You're stealing from the poor. You're stealing from those that God told you to be generous with. When God, and I get this all the time where I'll just have like a moment. This is the Holy Spirit. When you go, I'm thinking of so-and-so. I should encourage them and call them and say hello to them. That's the Holy Spirit saying, they're probably having a bad day. And you should call and encourage them. Write them a letter. Give them a call. And you go, ah, nah, they're probably fine. It'd go to their head anyway. You're depriving them of the very encouragement that God wanted to give to them through you. You see, sin separates us from other people. It creates disharmony within communities. The fruit of the Spirit leads to unity and love, but the fruit of sin leads to fracturing and mistrust. Uh, When we sin also, this is another thing to recognize. When we sin, we often can pass it on to the people around us. Um, There is something called generational sin. You know that thing that your father did that you said you would never do to your children? That thing that he said that got in there and you said, I will never say that to my child. And then you said it. Then you did it. You see, our sin has a way of being passed down through generations. This also happens in organizations, in nations, even in churches. Sin has, our sin has a way of corrupting the people around us. And within an organization, within a nation, or within a church, or within any kind of community, sin can create a corruption and a type of culture that affects everyone down the line. And John says, do not sin because you were built for community, and sin fractures these things. And he also says that sin separates us from ourselves. You see, we think our sin is harmless. We think that oh, it's no big deal. It's not hurting anybody. But John says, do not sin because he knows that what we do in the darkness pulls us further away from the light. We can try to justify our sin. We can try uh, to, to justify these things. But the fact remains, when we walk in darkness, we walk in darkness. And the longer you walk in darkness, the further away you are drifting from the person you were made to be. See, the mask of darkness often allows, a, allows you to act like someone other than yourself. Um, do you guys know the social media account Humans of New York? You guys ever heard this, seen this? I've been following this account for 15 years now. Um, a guy named Brandon Stanton goes around all over New York, and he just takes photos of people, and he asks them questions. And the captions are just incredible. You get a great view into the New Yorker spirit um, by following this account. And there's one, uh, pull up this photo. This was, there was one he posted in 2014. I remembered it, filed it away. Um, this girl is in, I don't know, I guess that's, uh, looks like Long Island Railroad or maybe the airport or something. But this was the caption that she said. She said, I wish I'd partied a little less. People always say, be true to yourself, but that's misleading because there are two selves. There's your short-term self, And there's your long-term self. And if you're only true to your short-term self, your long-term self slowly decays. Now, I don't know if she's a Christian, but what she just described 
is the way, the way in which sin can malform us. You know, we often say the short-term self says, sounds good, let's do it. Who suffers when you do that? The long-term self. Uh, sin has a corrupting and a malforming effect on our souls. And the more you practice sin, the more you will sear your conscience and you, the less you will hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and you will finally, eventually, find yourself in a place where your sin has taken you to a place you didn't think you would ever go. And all throughout the scriptures, this is called slavery, bondage. Sin always promises these certain pleasures. And then you take the hook and realize that it was a hook. It, it, it promises these things before you do it, and then it pulls the rug right out from under you once you do it. Sin keeps you from becoming your true self. And I don't mean that in like the Oprah sense. I mean that in the scriptures say that he who has called you, he is forming you into the image of his son. That is God's desire for you, that you would be like Jesus. And anything you do that is further away from the way of Jesus is you are forfeiting becoming your true self. There are costs to sin. And we must heed the loving, fatherly warning of the Apostle John when he says, don't do it. Don't do it. Now, if that were the end of the sermon, you might be motivated, right? You go out here, all right, not going to sin. You know, I'm not going to do it. But that would be an incomplete sermon because there is so much more that John wants to tell us. He says, do not sin, do not sin, do not sin. It, bra- it fractures your relationship with God, with yourself, with others. But if you confess your sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. But if anyone does When anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Do not sin. Hear me, I'm pleading with you. Do not sin. But when you do, when you do, when you do, because you will, when you do, what do you do? What do you do? When you do, do you hide in shame? Do you give up? Do you retreat? Do you try to defend yourself, justify yourself, minimize it? Do you try to advocate for yourself? Do not sin, but when you do, and this is where John leads us to the grace of Jesus, do not sin, but when you do, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And it is so crucial that we understand both of these things equally. If you only hear, stop sinning, and and your, your life is motivated by that command, you will be crushed by the weight of that command. You will turn into a religious busybody trying to keep God happy. But if you only hear, God is gracious, hey, he forgives. You'll justify your sin and you'll forfeit the very life that God has for you. These are two sides of the same coin. These are wings of the same dove. Do not sin, but when you do. You see, I want you guys to hear me when I say this. What you do after you sin is just as significant as what you did. 
what you do after you sin is just as significant as when you sin. John says when you do sin, to remember two things. One, that if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you. And two, remember that you have an advocate in Jesus. And you go, I, what does that mean? What is an advocate? Well, my wife is a social worker. And at the core of social work is advocacy. My wife is an advocate. She advocates for those who are underserved and under-resourced. She advocates for those who are not aware of the resources that are available to, to them. She advocates for people who are not aware of their rights. Oftentimes, she speaks for those who are unable to speak for themselves. She's a voice for the voiceless. She spent several years, the beginning of her career, advocating for senior adults. Then she transitioned to foster, advocating for foster children. Now she advocates for birth mothers and children being put up for adoption. And in all of these cases, these are groups of people who rely totally and completely on her skill as their advocate. Any victory in court, any placement into a family, or any victory in policymaking is attributed not to my wife, even though she's the one that did it, but to her clients. They reap the full reward of her advocacy. Another example of an advocate would be a defense attorney, Charles Hodge, the old Princeton theologian. He likened the word advocate to a defense attorney. He says, when you're standing before a court, you disappear into your advocate, your attorney. This is why like on all the shows, on the you know, uh, courtroom dramas, the, the attorney is always like, you be quiet. Let me do the talking, right? Last thing you want is a creative witness, right? Uh, somebody defending themselves. Let me defend you and you sit there. Tim Keller continues this analogy of a courtroom. He says, if you stammer in court, but your lawyer is eloquent, what do you look like to the court? Eloquent. <laughs> he says, if you're ignorant, but your lawyer is brilliant, what do you look like in the court? You look brilliant. In some cases, you may not be required to speak or even to appear personally in court. Your attorney appears in your place as your substitute, as your advocate. So what do you look like in court? You look like whatever your advocate looks like. If your advocate wins, you win. If your advocate loses, you lose. In short, you are lost in the advocacy of your advocate. You are in your advocate. When John says we have an advocate with the Father, his name is Jesus Christ the righteous, what he is saying is that if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is your advocate. He stands before the Father advocating for you when you sin, pleading for justice on, like an advocate on your behalf. And for some of you, you go, That's, that, that feels troubling. Um, you think that may actually be troubling. I used to think so. Because I used to imagine the courtroom scene like this. Like, I just sinned, I just messed up, and Jesus is standing before the Father. And the Father says, okay, here is Will McGee. He's not kept my commandments. He's not loved me with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind and his strength. He's certainly not loved his neighbor as himself. He's a sinner. He continues to sin. He's going to sin again. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, Will McGee has got to go. And then I imagine that Jesus says, oh, 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 now hold on a minute. Father, give him one more chance. Give him one more chance. He's had a tough week. He's got a lot on his plate right now. He's working on his temper. He's working on his bitterness. 
He's a good guy. He's just in a tough spot right now. Give him one more chance. Have mercy on him. Now that image is comforting to a very small extent. Because at some point, you think Jesus is going to be like, forget it. I'm not going to the Father again on that same thing. I'm not going to put my name on the line for you again. It's been 37 years, dude, and you're still messing up. But that is not at all what it's like. Jesus is an advocate. And as your advocate, Jesus is not asking for leniency. He isn't even asking for mercy. He's asking for justice. Jesus, this, when you sin, Jesus advocates for your, to, to the Father like this. Yes, Will is guilty. And yes, he keeps doing the same thing over and over again. And yes, the wages of sin is death. But don't you remember, Father, I paid for all of it on the cross. And God, Father, you know that it would be unjust for you to, be an, to, be, to remain angry at will for this sin because I have already absorbed the full punishment of it and I have given will my righteousness. So by your own standard of justice, God, you are obligated to give him the blessings and the reward that were coming to me. Father, I am your beloved son with whom you are well pleased. What do you have to give me? I'm giving it to will. And you are just, and so you, you will not, you cannot punish him because I've already taken the punishment. That is the gospel. Jesus is your advocate. You see, do not sin. Sin has consequences. But when you do, you have an advocate. And here's the beautiful thing about that. If you, I, there's a book I've recommended a few times here, and I recommend it again and again. It's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And he has a chapter on Jesus as our advocate. And what's so beautiful about Jesus as our advocate? You know, Jesus is our intercessor. He prays for us. The scriptures say he is always praying for us. But Jesus is not always our advocate. When is Jesus our advocate? When we sin. So Dane Ortland, he points out, he says that that moment when you do the thing that you said you were never going to do and you feel all the shame and all the sorrow and all the ugliness and, and you think at this moment, God could not be pleased with me. At that very moment, Jesus is going, got to put my suit on because now it's time to advocate. He said, like, it's the moment that you sin that Jesus goes into advocacy mode. And you think at that moment he's running from you, but actually it is in your sin that he's running most towards you. And it pleases him to do that. And so I don't know what you're dealing with here today, but if you have unconfessed sin in your life, ongoing sin in your life, and maybe you just feel the weight of sin and shame over it right now, I want you to know that right now, even at your worst, Jesus is advocating to the Father on your behalf. Right now, in your worst moment, Jesus is ramping up his mercy and his grace and his kindness. It's not for the healthy that he came. It's for the sick in need of help. Let me pray for us. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and we have strayed from your ways like lost sheep.
we have all followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not had to have done. But you, O oh Lord, have mercy upon us. And you spare those who confess their faults. And you restore those who are repentant. According to your promises declared unto us. In Christ Jesus our Lord. And so grant us, most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen.